book of James chapter 2 as we make our way through this short yet powerful letter penned by James, the brother of our Lord. Come to verse 8 in our reading of James 2. I'd like to begin reading there down to verse 13. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's holy, infallible, inspired word. James chapter 2 beginning in verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth and the power that it conveys. Thank you for the fact that it is implanted in our hearts. And we pray that we with meekness would receive that implanted word so that it might bear forth fruits of righteousness for your glory and for the good of our neighbor. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, beloved Lord, let me ask you, how many crimes do you think you've committed in your life? As you're tallying up all the crimes that you have committed, let me warn you, it may be more than you think. Civil liberties lawyer Harvey Silvergate, in his book, Three Felonies a Day, suggests that the average working American, before he sits down for dinner at night, has committed three federal crimes without even knowing it. And this is due to the fact that there are thousands of, of, of laws that are on the books of which we, for the most part, are completely ignorant of. And that doesn't even include state and local laws, which we probably break on a daily basis. But I think this idea that the law, that in the law of our land, the fact that there are thousands of laws, which you have to really just be a lawyer to know even, uh, even a particular field of law study, it leads us to think about the law as an unknowable, unrealistic, and unattainable ideal. But if this is true of the law of the land, how much more the law of God? We confess in our shorter catechism that ever since the fall, no mere man is able in this life to perfectly keep the commandments of God, but daily breaks them in thought, word, and in deed. The Hutterberg Catechism asks the question, can those who converted to God keep his commandments perfectly? To which it answers, no. Even in this life, the holiest of men have only a small beginning of obedience. And so when we confess those things, we might think, well, what's the point? If even having been made alive in Christ, even then we can't keep the law perfectly, why even try? You see, people forget to go on reading what the Heidelberg Catechism says when it, when it goes on to say, Nevertheless, with all seriousness of purpose, they, that is, those of us united to Christ, begin to live according to all 
not only some of God's commandments. So as we're reminded in our passage today, part of the good news of the gospel is not only that our sins are forgiven and the righteousness of Christ is given to us, but also that we are further sanctified and we begin in this life, although not perfectly, although we do not keep any of God's commands perfectly, there is not a single command that we will not at least begin to fulfill in this life. And that's part of the good news of the gospel. And that's what James is hoping to remind us of as he speaks about really fulfilling the royal law of Christ. Keep in mind the context. James has been showing how completely inconsistent it is for us to hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ and to show partiality, whether that comes in the form of showing, showing favoritism to the people we do like or discrimination against people we'd rather not spend time with. He demonstrates how through this vivid illustration of two men walking into a synagogue, a rich man and a poor man, he shows how catering to the rich in in hopes of personal gain is ultimately self-defeating. Because when we do that, we bring the ways of the world into the church. And that just will not work. Furthermore, as James has, as we saw last week, in despising and dishonoring the poor, we are acting completely contrary to the way in which our Heavenly Father so often acts towards the poor. It's the poor that he has chosen to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom of his son. James offers a final reason why we ought not to show partiality towards others, judge them by external appearances alone. Finally, he shows in our passage today, showing partiality is a violation of the law of the kingdom of Christ, which above all things is characterized by love, loving God and loving your neighbor. But you see, some of James's readers might say, well, wait a minute, James, we are loving our neighbor. We're loving our rich neighbor. We're showing him honor and deference. And that, of course, is love, isn't it? Well, no, James says, no, if you really fulfill this law, you will love all your neighbors as yourself, even the ones that are hard to love. See, Jesus says it's easy to love those who love you. It's easy to lend money to people that you know that they're going to send it back, give it right back to you, plus interest. And Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that? Even the sinners and tax collectors do the same. No, we need to really fulfill this law of liberty by loving all of our neighbors as ourselves. But notice how James characterizes this law. He calls it a royal law, literally the law of the king. Now here, James, when he's referring to the royal law, he's not referring to the law as it had been given to the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai through Moses. No, he's referring to the law as it has come to us through our Lord and King, Jesus Christ. This royal law is that same law of liberty he mentioned back in chapter 1 that we look at intently to be reminded of who we are in Christ. It's that same law of liberty by which we at the last day will be judged. This royal law is the the word that we receive with meekness so that it might be implanted into our hearts. It's a royal law that we as citizens of the kingdom of heaven 
receive and are able to obey as we are governed by the Spirit of Christ as we begin in this life to fulfill the law of Christ by bearing one another's burdens, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 6. But what's fascinating is although James is talking about the law as it has been given to us in Christ, he summarizes this law by quoting the Old Testament, quoting from Moses himself, love your neighbor as yourself. This is, uh, uh, this is of, of course, a quotation from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And it's a great summary of the law. We saw the Apostle Paul do the same thing in our reading of the law today. In Romans chapter 13, he says, the whole law is filled and fulfilled in one word, love. Love your neighbor. Jesus does the same thing in Matthew 22, when he says the law is summarized in two commands. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. St. Augustine said, love God and do whatever you want. Because if you're loving God, then you're going to love your neighbor And if you're loving your neighbor, then you're going to do no wrong to your neighbor, and you're going to fulfill the law. And of course, part of loving your neighbor is not showing partiality. It's fascinating. If you go back to Leviticus 19, which says, love your neighbor as yourself, just a few verses before it says, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. So not showing partiality is part of loving your neighbor as yourself. So we see that as far as the moral requirements of God's law, there's no difference between the law of liberty and the law of Moses. In substance, they are the same. Because ultimately, that moral to love is a reflection of God's own nature, which does not change. God is love, and he commands us to love him and one another, and that will never change. And so what's the difference then between the royal law of Christ and the law of Moses? Well, the difference is the relationship we have to that law. The law can either be something that we need to fulfill on our own, and as we'll see, we need to do it perfectly, or... Our relationship to the law could be something that is something that has already been fulfilled for us and is being fulfilled in us by the power of the Spirit. So that's what I think James is highlighting here, these two different ways in which we can relate to this law to love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, the difference, the, the, what, what makes the law not just a law of bondage, but a law of liberty, of course, the difference is the coming of Christ. He gives the old command to love your neighbor a radically new twist. In John chapter 13, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. And at this point, you think his disciples might be thinking, Well, wait a minute, Jesus, this isn't a new command. This is an old command. You're quoting from Leviticus 19, to love one another. But notice what's new. Jesus goes on to say, Love one another, not as you love yourselves, but as I have loved you. So you are to love one another. You see, only with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, with his perfect life, death, sacrificial death, and glorious resurrection, can we see tangibly what it ultimately looks like to love somebody in that manner. And Jesus now calls us as his disciples to do the same. And he says, he he goes on to say, by this, all people will know 
that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. But as James goes on to say, if you show partiality for those who insist on deferring to the great and despising the poor, who refuse to show mercy to their fellow man and do not seek to live under Christ's gracious reign, they're showing that the law of Christ is not implanted in their hearts and thus are outside of Christ. And therefore, James warns them of the condemning nature of the law. If you want to do this on your own, James says, you will be condemned. The law will condemn you as a transgressor. And he says something pretty significant in verse 10. He gives a hypothetical scenario. Imagine if somebody in this life were to fulfill the law, to keep the entire law their whole life. Every single day they get up and they love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every single day they love their neighbor as themselves. They honor their father and mother. They don't commit adultery. They don't murder. They don't slander. They don't gossip. Never have a fleeting thought of lust go through their mind. Their entire life. And yet they have one bad day. One slip up. One fall. One sin they commit. James says if that happens, then that person is guilty of the whole law. This can be summarized by Deuteronomy 27. Cursed be everyone who does not abide in all the things written in the book of the law and do them. If you don't keep the entire law perfectly, your entire life, you get cursed as if you had broken the entire law. Well, how is that possible? You see, unlike our federal and state laws, which just are a list of do's and don'ts, the law of God is not just a list of things that we check off. Did this, did that, don't do this, don't do that. No, the law of God is a reflection of his very nature. Just say, for example, I, I get pulled over for speeding. I'm doing 55 and a 25. And on top of that, I didn't use my signal. And on top of that, my, uh, my rear view mirror is busted. The police officer would have a whole choice of laws that he could bust me for, a whole list of things that he could check off, and my ticket or my punishment would increase depending on how many laws I commit. But you see, when, when you break a, a law, whether it be a federal, state, or local ordinance, you're not offending the legislators personally. The governor doesn't take personal offense because he signed that law or he signed that bill into law. But no, you see, it's different with God. When God gives us his commandments, it's a very reflection of, it's a reflection of his very nature. And so when we break his commands, we're not just violating a list of do's and don'ts, but we are sinning against not just the law, but the lawgiver. And James goes on to say, since it's the same person, the same lawgiver who said, do not commit adultery as do not murder. If you do one, you are as if you, it's as if you did the other because you're sinning against God's nature. Since it's the same lawgiver behind all the commands, all sins, whether they are in thought, word, and deed are a personal attack against God himself. Now, this isn't to say that some sins are more heinous than others. Scripture clearly teaches that. 
Some people will be punished with more stripes. Some people, because they have sinned in more heinous ways, will be punished more and accordingly. But scripture is also very clear that God will not and cannot tolerate even the slightest offense. Even that one bad day you may have had, he cannot admit that person into his presence. He demands perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience to his law. No second chances, no do-overs. This is what judgment without mercy looks like. No room for error. And this is what those who refuse to show mercy to their neighbors can expect to receive. What kind of relationship is James describing here to the law? Well, of course, he's describing the law as a covenant of works. It's up to you to keep it perfectly, personally, and perpetually your entire life. Judgment without mercy. Well, that's one option. But I don't know about you, but I don't want that option. That's bad news. Well, the good news is that there's another way, another option we have in Christ. You see, James warns about judgment without mercy, which implies the fact that there is also a judgment with mercy. This judgment, as he says, uh, a judgment according to the law of liberty. This is a judgment without condemnation, where the favorable verdict has already been declared because God has done what what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. In sending his son to fulfill the law for us and to set us free from the law of sin and of death. You see, what James calls the law of liberty, the apostle Paul calls the law of the spirit of life that sets us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and of death for those who walk walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And the good news of the gospel is not only that there is no condemnation, that you are justified, but also that you will be set free from the law of sin and of death to live lives of righteousness, sanctification. That's the other blessing that we receive from Christ. So that the righteous requirement of the law is beginning to be fulfilled, not just for us, but in us. And although all of us will have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, as even the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, and as James says, so act and so speak, or so speak and act as those who will be judged, for the believer there's no fear of condemnation. This is a judgment with mercy, where mercy triumphs over judgment. There's no condemnation, but rather an eager anticipation to be openly acknowledged and acquitted by God himself. And then to be graciously rewarded for all the works that he has performed in and through us. We don't deserve any of those rewards. Even the good good deeds that we do in this life, God will graciously reward those. It's grace upon grace. You may recall the parable of the Lord Jesus Christ when he talks about when he comes at the last day, he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. And he's going to say to the sheep, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the kingdom. And he extols them for the good deeds that they did. And they said, Jesus, when did we do these things? When did we do these things? And he says, 
in, in as much as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you have done it unto me. You see, they protest their reward. But Jesus graciously rewards them through the works that he did through them by the power of the Spirit. This is what it looks like for mercy to triumph over judgment. This is what it looks like for God to exalt his grace even as he remains just as the justifier of the ungodly. So James goes on to say, so speak and so act. What does that look like? Practically, what does it look like to be those who speak and act uh, uh, as those who will be judged by the law of liberty? Well, for one, it precludes all forms of partiality. Remember the context. That's what James is talking about. You can't show partiality. You can't judge people by external uh, appearances. But positively, it also means that our lives should be characterized by love as well as mercy. Treating others as we would have them treat us. Not giving them what they deserve if they've offended us. Helping them in their time of distress. Doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, counting others as more significant than ourselves. This is what it looks like to speak and act as those who are governed by that royal law of liberty. And we do these things not to earn our salvation, but because Christ has earned it for us. By looking intently at that law of liberty, we are reminded of who we are in Christ and then motivated to live lives of gratitude. And as we are loving and merciful to others, we demonstrate that fruit of faith and show the evidence of God's grace in our lives. And this is the amazing thing that James says. When we do that, when we show mercy to others, which is really just God's grace working through us, When we do that, we can expect to receive mercy. As Jesus says, blessed are are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, the important question to ask at this point is, is God merciful, is God going to be merciful to us because we're, we're merciful or the other way around? Is our mercy the ground of God's forgiveness Is he just so impressed when we're merciful to others, when we forgive other people that God just, he can't control himself, so he has to forgive us? Or rather, is it the fruit and evidence of the fact that we have already been forgiven? Well, obviously, it's the latter. I think this point is made very clearly by our Lord Jesus Christ in the parable he tells in Matthew chapter 18 of the servant who has been forgiven. The story starts off with Peter coming to Jesus and asking him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Now, Peter at this point is probably trying to impress Jesus. He's, he's trying to show like how many times he would be willing to forgive somebody. And he says, seven. Jesus says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. In other words, we ought always to forgive our neighbor without keeping a tally. And Jesus goes on to say, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. 
When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. This is a, a sum of money that it would take about 20 years to make. In today's money, it would be millions of dollars that this servant owed the king. But he could not pay. And so his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. Notice here, he doesn't just give him time to pay it back. He wipes it clean. He forgives the debt entirely and sends him on his way. But the parable takes a turn when, when Jesus goes on to say, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owned him, who owed him a hundred denarii. This is about a hundred bucks. How money a, a day laborer would make in one day. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that, they had, all that had taken place. So then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? There's the answer to our question. Is God merciful to us because we're merciful or the other way around? Well, obviously, we're merciful because he had mercy on us. Jesus summarizes the parable by saying, And in anger his master delivered him into the, to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. See, if we harden our hearts and refuse to show mercy to our, to our neighbor. If we do not forgive those who sin against us, that implies that we have not been forgiven. Certainly that we are not living lives consistent with the fact that we have been forgiven. We ought to forgive others even as God has forgiven us in Christ. But you see, that's evidence. It's fruit of the work of the Holy Spirit that has already been in our lives. We summarize in our passage, we see that there's two relationships we can have to that law. Love your neighbor as yourself, either as a covenant of works, which demands perfect, personal, perpetual obedience, which I don't know about you, but even today, I have not lived up to that standard. But on the other hand, we can receive it as a law of liberty, something that sets us free free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death because the Holy Spirit has implanted that word in our hearts. May we never forget who we are in Christ and what he has done for us. May we continue to live lives of gratitude even as we love our neighbor as ourself and show them mercy even as God has been merciful to us. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for the fact that you have been merciful for us. That you have not treated us as our sins deserve, but you have forgiven us all of our sins by becoming sin for us, so that in you we might become the righteousness of God. 
And we thank you for the fact that you not only wipe our slate clean and give us a new start, but you give us power through your spirit to begin in this life to fulfill that royal law of liberty. Bless us even this week as we go about our daily lives. May we continue to love and serve our neighbor. And we ask all this in your name. Amen.